0: We are in Numbers 14. Uh, I know you guys have been going through the book of Hebrews, but we're in Numbers 14. I'm going to read the first 20 verses of that passage. It says this, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, the whole congregation, said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel and Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we passed through to spy it out Is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us, their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones." But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them, And they will tell the inhabitants of this land, They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, It is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that He swore to give them, that He has killed them in the wilderness. And now please... Let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'm going to pray as you sit down. Lord, we come into your presence now and we tremble, at least I'm trembling, because your word is hard to hear. It's hard to take in, it's hard to digest, and so we need the power of your spirit to illuminate for us. We need it to make sense to us. We need you to come down and meet with us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. The two questions we're going to be discussing this morning are, what is rebellion against God and what is an intercessor? What is rebellion against God and what is an intercessor? Now, I know you guys have been going through the book of Hebrews, and so I need to give you a little bit of background on Numbers, which Numbers has a bad rap in the Bible. Everyone thinks it's boring, but it's not. Um, The the whole premise of it is that it's a traveling army, Israel, centered around God and His presence, and Numbers was originally called Bamidbar, which means in the wilderness, which is such a better name than Numbers. And this is where we are in the story. The Israelites were going through the wilderness to inherit this thing called the Promised Land, present-day Palestine, and God was going to Give them an identity. They were going to be known as the people of Yahweh, the people that you don't mess with, and the people that if you are in good with them, that they will bless you. And so here they are on the edge of the promised land. Spies had gone in to spy out the land, and it was a very good land, but the problem is there are these huge giants in the land. And they're on the edge, and God tells them to go in and take it, and they won't do it because they're afraid. They repent, and that's a very important word in the book of Numbers, Shuv, they turn back to Egypt, away from God. That's what verses one through five of your passage are about. So what happens next is in verses five and six, the leaders begin to beg the whole group of Israelites not to, t- to turn back to Egypt. It says that Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly. Joshua and Caleb were the two spies that came back with the good report and said, Hey, we should go in and and seized this land, and they tore their clothes. And whenever anybody does that in the Bible, that means that something bad has happened. And then in verse 7 through 9, and you could think of Braveheart speeches where the guy's trying to gird up people for battle. They say this, "...the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord." And do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. What do most people think when they hear the phrase rebellion against God? I know what comes into my mind. What comes into my mind is some sort of perverse sexual sin, or something that would cause you to go to jail, or a hate crime. But our first point, what is rebellion against God, is I think clearly seen in those verses 7 through 9. Fearing people, stagnation in life, and not believing that the Lord is with you is what characterizes rebellion in God. Think about that. Rebellion in God is fearing others, stagnation in your life, and not believing that the Lord is with you. And as I began to think through this passage, I thought, well, who in any room doesn't struggle with those three things? We're all desperately afraid of what others are going to think about us and what others may do to us, which paralyzes us from moving forward in our lives because we're afraid. And this is all ultimately rooted in the fact that we don't believe that God is actually with us and that He delights in us. Over the past three years... I have got to, I got to have many conversations with a cousin of mine who has ended up in a place that no one in their right mind would ever want to be. And listening to her talk her situation out over the, the past three years, she ended up in that place because she didn't believe that people loved her, specifically people in her family. And that paralyzed her and caused her to do some very bad things. And she ultimately didn't care that God said that he delighted in her. Those are her words, not mine. She was running away from him. Now, that gets some people in very vivid displays that something has gone wrong, like a mental prison. You know where he gets others? At the very top of society. I don't know if you know who Jerry Rice is, but he is the greatest receiver in the NFL. And he, in his Hall of Fame speech, says something very, very insightful. Some of you have maybe heard it, but he says this. I'm here to tell you that the fear of failure is the engine that has driven me throughout my entire life. It flies in the faces of all these sports psychologists who say you have to let go of your fears to be successful, and that negative thoughts will diminish your performance. But not wanting to disappoint my parents and later my coaches, teammates, and fans is what pushed me to be successful. The reason nobody caught me from behind is because I ran scared. People were always surprised about how insecure I was. Can you relate to that? You know, fear can get some an incredibly thin body late into their 40s because you're desperately afraid about what your mother is going to say to your weight about your weight the next time you you visit home. Or the fear people can get others in pulpits saying things about Jesus we don't truly believe ourselves. Because we're afraid that people won't like us. Both roads of rebellion, the one of societal success and societal failure, look drastically different on the outside, but are in reality the same type of fear. One just merely appears more sane than the other. So here's my point Are you afraid of other people? Are you afraid of the future? just like these Israelites here. I think when we get honest with ourselves, we have fear that does cause us to be stagnant in our lives, and God wants to exacerbate that. He wants to bring a microscope onto that, and He wants to test you as to whether you're going to believe in His goodness, as to whether you believe that He's actually going to look at you and say one day, it's okay, (laughs) I I love you. And I will protect you. In all the places that others have hated you and in the ways that you've hated yourself, I delight in you and I love being with you. The picture of humanity here in Numbers, and it's certainly true to my experience, we throw that away. We throw the exact thing that we need into the trash. And Numbers has a great little phrase for that. It's called, let's go back to Egypt. And it's the language of repentance, but it's not the good kind of repentance. Let's repent from trusting in God and turn to our fears and to the hopeless stagnation that we've always known. Because at least there, we won't get hurt. Like in the promised land where those huge people are. We say at least with girls on a computer screen, they can't reject me. Or at least if I keep this job my children will be able to go to that school. At least if I stay in the U.S., I can talk about the gospel and stay alive. Or with the Israelites here, at least in Egypt, we didn't have to worry about the next meal because our oppressor would feed us so long as we remain slaves. And the whole of Scripture is a story of promised liberation, whether you want it or not and we are absurd just like these israelites here to not believe in the many many signs that god has given his people When well, you look down at verse 11 it says and the lord said to moses how long will this people despise me and how long will they not believe in the many in me in spite of all the signs that i have shown among them you know it takes diligence to rebel It's a deliberate choice that you have to make when you rebel to not think about how good God has been to you and is currently being to you. The fact that most of us in this room have not gone hungry or without clothes. When you're rebelling, you don't want to think about God's grace to you because it's just too painful. That's why it's God's kindness that primarily leads sinners into change. Meaning, you have to have suspended disbelief to go back to Egypt in your own way. You have to tell yourself, God wants the worst for me. You have to say, I'm not going to remember the the Red Sea parting in my own life. I'm not going to answer that phone call from the person that cares deeply about me. I'm not going to bring to mind all those times that I sat under the preaching of the Word and my heart burned inside of me because I knew the promises of God were true. And not only were they true, they were for me. When you rebel, you have to lay that aside and you have to tell yourself it was just a feeling. It was groupthink. Christianity is false. I'm a product of southern culture. (laughs) It's endemic to be Christian here. Therefore, I was drinking the Kool-Aid. And then you say, and this happens a lot on the campus, "I, I will know if I'm a Christian if I hang out with nobody else that believes in God. And I still have faith. The book of Hebrews, as you will find out in the coming weeks, says that that's impossible to continue the Christian life if you don't hang around other people who actually believe in God. And what this is ultimately rooted in is seen in that very sad question in verse 11 that God asks Moses, How long will this people despise me? That's the root, is it not? For all of us, it's not that we want a little Christianity one day a week without it messing up the other six. It's not that we're a little lethargic about our spiritual life, nor is it the fact that we don't care for the poor enough. You and I know that the deepest problem is found underneath God's question there. That we have despised Him. And if you will let that sink in, if you will let Scripture silence you, If you will stop thinking that, yeah, other people despise Him, but, but not me. If you will stop blaming our culture, your parents, your bad care of the earth, the technology that we use every day, I believe that we will have a chance to turn back the other way and back towards God, away from Egypt. But it starts with you and I being willing to say we have despised Him. That's why I think it's completely appropriate, and I thought Cameron did a wonderful job at explaining the confession of sin. It's completely appropriate to have a confession of sin during worship. It's like AA in some sense, where you stand up and you say, listen, I'm addicted to despising the the only one that ever truly loved me, and I need some help. You see, every other belief system fails to root down to to root the breakdown of life and cultures and society within the hearts of men. And you guys know this. In politics, it's always the other side. With religion, it's always the moral. And with the atheist, it's always religion that's messing everything up. And Christianity says, you are the main problem with your life and the world. G.K. Chesterton, when he was asked once, what's the main problem with the world? He said, you're looking at it. Rebellion is fearing people, stagnation in life, and not believing that God is with you, which is ultimately rooted in the fact that we despise God. So you may say this morning, who in the world invited that guy to come speak to us? Um, What is he, some sort of religious masochist? No, I'm not. I'm trying to get us to see how bad and to what extent we have rebelled, whether we're religious or not, a Christian or not. And I think we see a great picture at the extent of this in verse 12. I mean, you need to get this. God wants to wipe the Israelites out. And I want you to see how Moses responds to God wanting to hit the reset button on his people. So let me read 12 through 16, and we'll get into the second point. This is God saying, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, for you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it's because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. Now, let me stop right there and move into the second point, which is what is an intercessor? So, you and I, we have these doubts and fears in our lives. One of of mine is that I'm scared of death. I'm scared that God won't be with me when I die. If, if you're single, you may be scared that you're going to be alone your entire life. If you're a perfectionist, you're desperately afraid of failure. And the Bible says that those aren't just arbitrary feelings and circumstances and responses to your life. What those feelings and responses are revealing is the fact that you don't believe that God is with you. And it's for that that you deserve to be wiped out, and so do I. They're on their way to, get this, they're on their way to a slow suicide, and God says to the Israelites here in verse 12, here, why don't I make it quick and easy for you? I'll make the cuts deep enough. I'll pull the trigger. And then what happens? The picture is that, that Moses literally comes in between the people and God. Moses steps into the place where God's wrath is about to be unleashed. And what does he do? It's it's incredibly interesting. (laughs) He starts telling God to think about what he's about to do. He says, now listen, Yahweh, let's think this through. If you kill this people, everyone's going to know, and Egypt is going to gossip about you to the other nations. And Moses says, what they're going to say is that you weren't able to stay true to your promise to give them the land that you swore to them. And then Moses does this even more strange thing. He starts reciting God's name back to God in verse 18. It says, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Remember, He's talking to God. And abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. It's quite bizarre what's going on. Why in the world does God not say, You know, Moses, I don't know if you forgot, but I'm God. I think I can work it out, what the nations will say about me on my own, but I appreciate your input. Why does God listen to this defendant attorney Moses for Israel, and why does he actually listen to the whole case when he knows what's going to happen? What's going on here is that God's condescending. He's condescending in a way to show us our desperate need for this thing called an intercessor. We desperately need someone pleading our case before God because we would be toast if we had to speak for ourselves. And notice the geniusness of Moses' case. He doesn't plead for the innocence of Israel. Moses starts talking about God. He starts naming God's attributes. It's almost as if he says, "But, but aren't you supposed to be the strongest God around, Yahweh? And if that's the case, then you better not kill these people. What he's essentially saying is that, God, you can't not be you. And within your very character, if you're going to have a rebellious people, then you have somewhat of a problem. Because you have to show mercy and you have to punish sin. And that's kind of an oxymoron. Now listen, that's the problem that you will face if you seek to live out the Christian life at all. How can you show mercy to people and it actually be beneficial to them instead of just perpetuating the problem? There has to be some change, right? Some rule being kept for once instead of the same old cycle of people taking advantage of your kindness over and over again. And the answer to that dilemma is found in the same person that Moses was foreshadowing that Tyler read about in Hebrews. Jesus is where that tension is released because He is where divine wrath and mercy meet each other. Now, think about this. He is where God is simultaneously despised and delighted in. And it's in Christ that God gives infinite mercy and calls you to infinite change. Because when Moses called out here to God and said, wait, 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 God, don't don't kill these people, God says, okay, I've pardoned him." But he knows that one day he's going to hear that same cry from another intercessor, from a voice that sounds all too familiar. And it's because of that that God says to Moses here, you did well to mention my name, because there's coming a day when I will not even pardon my own son who's going to stand before me and represent a whole host of people, and he's going to cry out for Israel just like you did, Moses, and he will be caught in the fire Of my wrath. And it will not be a good day. It will be a day of judgment, and on that day, the sons and daughters of men, the people of Israel, will know what we have caused God immense pain, death, crying out with no answer. All the things that we fear in this life, God will have to endure with no help at all. They will have a visible display of what despising me looks like when they see my son naked and covered in blood. Then we will say, my God, what have we done? What we've all done is seen in our text this morning. We've tried to go back to Egypt. The question for you and I this morning is how are we trying to do that right now? God's calling you to realize what you're doing. I always know it's in the places in my life that I'm unwilling to talk about. Somebody brings it up, I I stone that conversation with stones because I don't want to talk about it. And God's calling us not to crucify Jesus yet again through your sin and look at the beauty of this God. There is no other like Him because He has the power to let others hurt Him. He has the power to make people delight in Him who used to despise Him. I don't know if you caught what Tyler read in Hebrews 7.25, but it says this, Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. That's happening right now for you if you're in Christ. If you're here this morning and you don't believe in Christianity, you do believe in your imperfection. The fact that you have on clothes proves it. And what Christ's intercession means is that you have to come to grips with your neediness. You don't have it all together and you need someone on the outside telling you that it's going to be okay. And no other worldview maintains that you can do that without being blasted or without being a nobody. But Christianity says it's the least that are the greatest in this this realm that those who despised him can actually still get into his kingdom and begin to delight in him. And if you are a Christian here this morning, and you are beating yourself up over your continued sin, if you can't stand the thought of how you failed God and you failed others yet again, what you need to know is that God is not the one despising you and beating you up. He's completely infatuated with you. You've made it to the top because you are united to His Son, the true intercessor. Who, when you sin, He obeys in your place, and He tells God you can't count their sin against Him. So, do you know that you have a right to demand that God treat you as innocent and sinless? If you are united to Christ, you have that kind of confidence with, with God. And it's because of that that you, you have to go to war with your rebellion. You have to. Satan himself does not have the final say over your life, so what are you and I afraid of? Nothing will separate us from his love. For me, for me, it's reminding myself that whatever I go through in this life, or even at death, I have to tell myself Christ has gone before me and He came out on the other side. And He promises that He will be with me always to the end of the age. What is that for you? When you grasp who He is and what He's done, you will stop despising God because He's not like us. And you will change. It's His kindness that leads to repentance. One of the things that seals this into our hearts, we sing about it, the, the blood, <laughs> the blood of Christ comes into our hearts, is this table here, communion, the Eucharist, whatever you call it. We proclaim this type of gruesome death until he comes again. It's a very vivid and tangible display of how punishment and grace are kind of mingled together. Punishment for Christ and grace for you. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, let's pray. Father, sometimes Your Word is very hard to hear. It's very hard to preach. But we ask, Lord, as we come to the table that we would taste Your mercy, that we would taste how severe it costed You, to to give this to us, how hard it was, um, and that we would delight in You. Oh, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.